Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp for Android, the ultimate media player for your desktop and Android device, featuring wireless sync. Download it free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 278, recorded December 8th, 2010. Tag me with RFID. Security Now is brought to you by Ford and Voice Activated Sync, featuring true hands-free calling, turn-by-turn directions, 911 assist, and more, available exclusively on Ford, Lincoln, and Mercury vehicles. And by Carbonite Pro. With prices starting at $10 a month, all of your office PCs can be backed up safely and automatically. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. And by GoToAssist Express. If you're tired of traveling to fix tech support problems in person, resolve them quickly online with GoToAssist Express. For a free 30-day trial, go to GoToAssistExpress.com slash security. It's time for Security Now, the show that helps you stay safe online with the man who knows security better than anybody I know, Mr. GRC.com himself, Steve Gibson. Welcome to Security Now, Steve. I I should say that to myself. Wait a minute. You're not Leo. No, I'm Leo. (laughs) <laughs> a little time travel and beard growth and no leo's off at uh le web in france uh so uh le web. i am very excited to have a chance to uh co-host security now with you here uh i don't know if you know this but Spinrite saved a hard drive for me in 1993 i never knew that no you would cool. you wouldn't know unless you yeah. had some weird tracking system that that <laughs> no 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 not me i'm no, Mr. Exactly. Privacy, so there's no tracking going on uh, yeah no i had a uh, a packard bell 486DX uh, that wouldn't wouldn't uh, start up, and then I uh, booted off, spin right off a of floppy, diagnosed, uh, and was good. Was good. Very to go cool. From there on out. Also, yes, it's still going strong. Strangely yeah. enough, amazingly enough. So there, I don't. I mean, I know you know you have a testimonial later in the show, but there's an extra one for you. <laughs> well, thank you. So today um, we got we have episode 278, and it's a topic that has sort of been on my radar for a while, and uh, a number of technology things have sort of been happening. I wanted to talk about the sort of the technology side mostly, because, of course, this is primarily a technology podcast, though though this also has some non-technology aspects which are sort of intriguing. The idea of RFID tagging people. So... Uh, I called the show Tag Me with RFID, so which this I is, thought... This is something we're just starting to see in materials and shipping containers and clothing. We're going to be talking about doing it to ourselves? Well, yes. And in fact, believe it or not, there are even some states that have gone so far as to put legislation on their books to prohibit employers from mandatory RFID tagging of their employees. Um, the FDA has approved RFID tagging. I mean, like, you know, subdermal, you know, underneath your skin so that like this thing is like embedded in you. Um, the, the, uh, the FDA has approved it uh, since like for the last six years back in 04. And the, the technology exists. But so far from a tech from a from a 
from a crypto standpoint, I'm very unimpressed. So I thought it'd be fun to sort of talk about, you know, all aspects of being tagged, what it means, like from a standpoint of tracking and health and safety, but also primarily, what are the requirements for the technology that would, for example, you know, allow, you know, have me feel, me, Steve Gibson, feel good about being tagged. And, and frankly, I mean, I'm not all down on it. The idea that my car would know me, that I could just have a simple button on my uh, garage door so I don't have to have a key or a, or a keypad. Uh, my front door could be unlocked whenever I'm in the vicinity and locked when I'm not. Uh, that my laptop would recognize me, my phone and so forth. I mean, you can imagine if it was done right, there are some serious convenient factors associated with it. Um, and then, of course, there's always the dark side, too. So I thought we'd be fun talking about that well, this and, week. And that's the important thing to get into, right? Because with all of all technologies are tools, and there's good and bad sides. And so you, if you want to take advantage of the good sides, you need to know the bad sides. Yep. Um, I, am I confusing Kevin Warwick here? Is there somebody who has done this, who has RFID chipped themselves Well, there's actually a. There's actually a hobbyist movement. There are um, there. I found some some content on the web, uh, people talking about it. Where one guy posted, "Hey there, yeah, the cosmetic surgeon gave me an injection to numb the area, cut a three millimeter hole in my skin, lifted it a bit using medical scissors to separate it from the underlying tissue, then gently pushed the glass tag into the hole." And sealed it at least two millimeters deeper into the hole by gently pushing on it with a medical instrument of some kind. He says, the important thing is to get it between the dermis layer and the underlying tissues and not to go deeper than just the skin. Otherwise, migration could be an issue and you will likely have much more difficult time removing it uh, or finding it. So, I mean, so, I mean, you there, you could do this at home if you were so inclined. So, yeah, I mean, it actually is happening. It does make my skin crawl a little bit. I, I know. About it. But I then, know. you know what? I've done it to both my dogs. Both my dogs have tags. Oh, uh, no in kidding. Ca- in, okay. ca- in case they get lost, they can be yep. scanned and there's a database where you can check and find out who, where their address is and all of that sort of thing in case their collar was off or anything like that. So when you say you've done it, you mean you yourself had a syringe? And, no, in- no, no. I, I, oh, okay. I say I've ha- I should say I've had it done. Okay, uh, because there are syringes you can buy that inject these things in, in yourself. Yeah. So, ooh. Maybe I will. <laughs> if I get, well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll talk, decide. We'll wait. And, we, and we have a little bit of updates and, of course, security news. And I have an interesting testimonial about Spinrite rescuing a raid, which is something you don't normally run into because people think, well, if you have a raid, you don't need, you know, hard drive data recovery. Uh, it turns out not to be the case. All right, we'll get to all of that in a second. Let's thank uh, Ford, makers of Ford and voice-activated Sync, uh, the uh, the folks who helped to bring us security now. Uh, as you know, Leo loves his Ford voice-activated Sync. I got a chance to, to ride around with it uh, recently uh, in uh, wine country uh, and, and take advantage with, with some of the cool stuff that's going on where even as a passenger, and we always talk about how it's good for safe driving, and it is. Uh, you, you get true hands-free driving. You just say what you need, call this person, send this text, read a text to me. You keep your hands on the wheel and your eyes on the road. But it's great for a passenger, too. It's just more convenient. If you're, if you're busy looking out the window or, or planning your route amongst all of the, uh, uh, the wineries that you're going to visit, you can, you can skip songs, move songs just with your voice. 
True uh, 911 assist and more. If the airbags deploy, it calls 911. And, of course, uh, you've heard Leo talk about the uh, contest that's going on with the uh, f- the uh, the folks who are going to get flown. He said a secret location, but it says here in the copy where the ro- location is, and I've been saying it on Tech News Today. Am I not supposed to say this? I don't know. It's Madrid. Don't tell anyone I told you. Ford will donate $10,000 to a charitable cause. If you win, uh, you submit a video now through December 31st, 2010 at twitfordfocus.com. It takes you to a Facebook page. Telling your video up to two minutes long why you want to test drive a Ford Focus at the secret location in Spain. I mean the secret location between now and December 31st, 2010. Uh, and you could not only uh, get to take that test drive of the Ford Focus uh, the Ford Focus 2012 edition, uh, which will be coming out in early 2011, but you'll get flown to Europe to Spain's National Institute for Aerospace Knowledge Technology. So uh, make your video, upload it now. Take a look at the other videos at twitfordfocus.com. You've got from now until December 31st. All right, Steve, let's talk some security updates. What do we have in the pipe? Well, we've had a very quiet week. Um, I know of nothing that has of significant of significance that's been updated. Um, I did, however, want to remind people that we still have this pending um, local privilege escalation exploit that was uh, th- that was a zero day vulnerability uh, for all versions of Windows. Which the the danger is that that hackers are using it. It's in the wild. Um, Microsoft learned about it just without any opportunity to fix it in their last patch opportunity. And so thanks to the fact that the the first of the month was a Wednesday, that means that the second Tuesday of the month, the so, you know, Microsoft's patch Tuesday is as far into the month as it can possibly be. It's not till next Tuesday, December 14th, that we have the second Tuesday in December. Hopefully, they'll have this thing fixed. There was a a function in the graphics uh, library down on the kernel, which had a buffer, a classic buffer overrun that that allows someone who calls the function to, to get their code to be returned to with full root level system privileges so what that would mean is that if something did get on to your system as we know we're off we're all always telling people do not run normally as an administrator in the newer systems in fact really no one's running as an administrator you're able to elevate yourself when necessary to those privileges but um, the idea being that you're relying on that boundary being a non-privileged user to protect you from for example anything that gets on your system from being able to install itself as a rootkit. So this allows for, you know, rootkit-ish style attacks by getting full kernel privileges. Um, Hopefully, this will all go away next Tuesday. And the problem is there's really no workaround for it. That's um, what I was going to say. So this attack happens even if you're not running as admin. Correct. You can be running as, as a non-privileged user. Click on, you know, like open a PDF if you didn't have your your Acrobat or whatever PDF reader up to speed. Open a PDF that that, that uses an an exploit, whether known or not, but in in any case, you know, still active to to run some software that would then get privileges which you which you otherwise your your software wouldn't have and which you you your system is protecting itself by 
by restricting in order to you know, go down and, for example, modify the boot sector and get control of the system prior to Windows booting and then install itself as a rootkit, which there's a number of things that are doing that now. So anyway, we're holding our breath for one more week. And with any luck, next time we're recording this next week on the on Wednesday after Patch Tuesday, I'll be able to say, yay, they fixed it. So, I hope so. Yeah, I, I You know, really I open do. most of my PDFs as Google Docs out of Gmail. Does that provide any extra protection against this sort of thing? Well, it, in the case of PDFs, it does. Uh-huh. Um, Go- Google has that nice PDF viewer now. Mm-hmm. And so the idea being that you're not... You're not running the the PDF interpreter on your system. You're looking at the output from it. But the other bit of news this week, or a relevant piece of news, is that that Chrome's the the Google Chrome browser was just moved up to version 8.0. It's been in the dev channel for a while. It's now in their regular release channel. And in fact, anybody who fires up their, their their browser will probably notice that they're now at version 8.0.552.215, which introduces something we've talked about as as coming soon, which is now available, is Google's PDF viewer running in the Chrome browser in a sandbox. And so the the idea is, uh, Google's been talking about doing this for some time, Um, their own PDF viewer, not Acrobat, not a plug-in, runs natively in the browser. So just, you know, the browser knows how to view PDFs. You don't have to add anything to it. And it's running with restricted with with its own set of privilege restrictions. So, for example, even if you had something like this kernel flaw, nothing that was being rendered in the PDF viewer would have access to to the exploit in the kernel because the 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 the, the browser is sandboxing the viewer itself. So that's available now and coming soon is some of the similar technology for Adobe's Flash Player. That's in the dev channel code at the moment for Google's Chrome browser. And I hope before long to be able to say that that's in the mainstream. So um, but in addition to that, they fixed 13 other security vulnerabilities. But uh, so, so, yes, using Google Docs to view a PDF or using Chrome... And Chrome is is coming on strong. They're, 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 it's, it's turning out to be robust from a security standpoint, and it's steadily gaining market share. Um, you know, I, I fired it up in order to, to take a look at this PDF viewer and see if I had the latest version. We, you, know, you know, it updated itself transparently. And I was looking at it thinking, wow, you know, if I only had more flexible tab stuff and NoScript, I love NoScript in Firefox. For, yeah, I'm a for big just, fan of that myself. I run it all the time. That and yeah. HTTPS everywhere make me sleep a little better yes, while I'm there browsing are, or something. Yes, there's enough of an ecosystem in Firefox that I'm, I just can't leave it yet. But if Chrome continues to, you know, to move forward and add some of these things, it, boy, it just looks so clean. It's just a, it's, I mean, it's really nice looking. And they're really advancing with the sandboxing. They're pushing that not only for Chrome, but for Chrome OS as well. And I, I, I don't know, I think that's a great thing. Well, it's, it is the sort of thing, you know, I've railed at length on the podcast before about just sort of this, how crazy it is that we're running a tech, we're, we're running operating systems that 
inherently are as vulnerable as they are. That, you know, that, that every week we're talking about one exploit or another, one vulnerability or another. People are having to patch themselves constantly to stay ahead of it. You know, it, it, if, if the technology was inherently invulnerable to this, rather than being inherently vulnerable to it, we'd, we'd be in a much better situation. It seems so, so simple when you put it like that. Yeah, exactly. It, it's, <laughs> it'd be nice if it was. Um, I also wanted to let our, our um, listeners know that the, the much-anticipated first service pack for Windows 7 is now at the release candidate level. So I expect probably within the next couple of weeks, I'll be able to announce that service pack one for Win 7 is available. And of course, that will roll up and together all the security fixes, all the incremental changes which have been done to Win 7, and there have been many of them since its release into a single, you know, single update package, which for new installations of Windows 7 will be very nice because you'll just have all of this history made, you know, homogenized into a single release. And a lot of enterprises wait until SP1 before they make the jump. So the, this is highly anticipated in a lot of sectors, really. Yes, you mean like make the jump at all to yeah, a new OS, to, to new Windows, to go from well, in some cases XP, but uh, in some cases Vista. Yeah, yeah. I uh, but actually, I'm still I'm still on XP, um, and I, and that's what I preach too. Is like any operating system that's brand new is inherently untrusted. You know, Steve Ballmer may jump around on stage and and proclaim that it's the securest operating system they've ever made, but as we know. Security is not something that you can create by proclamation. It's something you can only test out in the real world and have its security proven over time. And, of course, they've never produced, Microsoft has never produced a secure operating system out of the box because they keep adding too many new things. And, you know, newness is the enemy of security. So, Well, you can't uh, create security by proclamation. Can you create privacy by proclamation? That's what the FTC wants to do. Well, you yeah, it's a good point. You can you can create privacy by policy. And so that that that's that's essentially what we're hoping to see. The FTC the FTC um is has is beginning to stir, frankly, and I think this is a consequence of the, of the New York Times. It's been doing a fantastic series of articles. I think oh, it's un, under the umbrella of what they know is is what what the New York Times calls their whole series and being just week after week after week they've been pounding on um, many topics of online privacy and often about tracking and so what the FTC has produced is a is a I think it's an 80 some page document which they have given to the browser makers to Mozilla and to Google and to Microsoft who all sort of you know, accepted it cautiously, wondering what this was going to mean. What they're what they're asking for is some sort of a mechanism, and it's still it's still not well specified. But the, but they but they look at the success of the of the do not call registry for telephones, where where people who did not want to receive telemarketing calls were able to register their phone number with the national do not call registry, and telemarketers were were prohibited from calling 
any number registered. And, and that so, worked. I, I cut yes. my calls down significantly. Now, there was an exception if you did business with that company. So your bank or your cable provider, they could still call you. So th- but those are the only ones I got after I signed up for Do Not Call. Yeah, it was a great thing. So what the FTC is talking about is a do not track mechanism of some sort. It's not clear whether it would be a registry, whether it would. I mean, the the the, the technology of the web session is such that it probably has to be different. There is some not quite perfectly defined feature that Microsoft has announced that that IE9, the next version of Internet Explorer, will have some sort of a list of, of like sites. It's not clear whether it's opt-in or it's opt-out or exactly what it's going to be. What would be really nice and what the FTC has suggested is some sort of a button on browsers that is a do not track button. And so, you know, you press the button and what you know from a technology standpoint one thing i could imagine it would do is it would add a header to all of the browser's queries so we would we would change and we we would enhance the http protocol a bit to to define a new header essentially a do not track header such that every query your browser made for pages and all of the pages assets you know pictures and and scripts and css files i mean everything would have this essentially a do not track request or demand which would be essentially legally enforceable if this if there was legislation to back this up so that every query that went to a server would say i am officially saying do not track me do not do anything that you know and, and again this is where okay what is tracking we'd have to have that clearly defined mm, yeah but you know i mean i don't know anybody who wouldn't say oh uh, gee, why not just have that button pressed? You know, keep that button pressed in, and then you know you're not being tracked. Now, everyone says, "Oh, but this would you know hurt online commerce." And there are sites that require tracking in order to offer their content for free. You know, I'm really skeptical, and and I've always been dubious about the amount of value which is aggregated by these guys. I mean, when you look at their databases and you and you you have a sense for and this is one of the things that the New York Times has been so good about um, elucidating is that the kind of of content and I mean the 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 kind of personal information that is being gathered really is a little bit unnerving. But I guess I wonder really is there a, an economic cost to saying I do not want to be tracked to sites, and in fact, I have seen some some um, some commentary where people have said, "Well, you can imagine a site that would say, wait a minute, you're you've got your do not track button enabled, um, but we really for this site, we get so much revenue from our advertisers that you know we're only going to be able to offer you the content if you allow tracking." So. It sort of could evolve into a no script like technology where you where you do not track by default, but you could run across sites that can obviously they're able to sense that you're you're you you've got track blocking 
enabled so they could say hey in the same way that sites say that you've got javascript enabled right and they'll say you know it's like wait a minute you've got javascript enabled you know in, our, in order for our site to work you've got to enable that they could say you've got tracking blocked if you want to use the site we'd be happy to provide you with its features but you're going to have to enable tracking i've, then actually, I've actually run across sites that said because i had no script running you you're you're blocking ads but i wasn't blocking ads i just wasn't executing the scripts and they said you can't access our content until you stop blocking the ads. So you trust the script if you feel like it, and then you get the content. It worked just like that, right? Yes, and I could. I, you know, if that's the way the world evolved, I think you know either people could say I don't care about this at all, so they would they would allow tracking by default, or they would say I do care about it, and then they they could make an informed opt in decision, in you know on a site by site basis, saying okay, fine, I'll put up with tracking in order to have access to these sites features so yeah it could work exactly like that which would be very cool yeah i i i think this would be uh advantageous in many ways you might even say it could be advantageous to the businesses who are thinking well i need to put in a paywall if they could say you know what we're going to have a better sense of who our audience really is if we say you know we're only going to track the people who really read this many stories or or do this kind of behavior might be more valuable data at that point yeah. Well, and I mean, you sort of see things like this, too. I know, for example, the New York Times um, has content that they will offer to people who are non-registered with them. But then there are links which have a little flag on them saying, no, nope, this is only available, you know, like the full content is only available for people who register. And of course, what they really want is your email address so they can, yeah. you know, send you stuff. And so it's like, oh, OK, well, and so then again, you you make that trade off. Do Am I willing to tolerate their spam in return for full access. I'd so. rather hit a track me button than have to go through some long login procedure where I have to enter all, all that information and log in every time. That's just a pain. Right, right. So um, I wanted to advise our listeners who might be using the Pro FTP server. There is an open source very nice FTP server known as Pro FTPD. You know, is D is the the server side, the daemon. Um, there was a zero day vulnerability in their code, which hackers took advantage of because they were using their own FTP server. Not surprisingly, on their website. So the the zero-day vulnerability was used to gain access to their source code, and it was modified. Sometime, the, the, it looks like the access was gained at the very end of November, on November 28th, and this the modification of the source code wasn't discovered until December 1st. So not a big window, but between November 28th and December 1st, anyone who downloaded this pro ftp server was downloading a a essentially a maliciously modified version such that a new command had been added someone who logged on to the server during the initial handshake and entered a new command help space acid bitch ez a-c-i-d-b-i-t-c-h-e-z would have been given a root command shell into the server running this pro FTP 
server, which is, of course, not a good thing. This is server, so, not the client, right? So it's when you're operating FTP on the server side. Correct, on the server side. And and so I just want to, you know, if, if we've got listeners who are using Pro FTP, uh, if you didn't make any changes to it during that window, which I would say is most likely, you're, you're okay and fine. Um, they do have, of course, uh, hashes of the, of the valid server, so you can check yours to make sure that it's working. And they, of course, found the problem, fixed it, and they have not talked about what the zero-day flaw is, and it's not clear to me that it's been fixed. So mm. there, is, there is a concern with, um, with, with uh, using... Pro FTPD, you want, might want to make sure that they talk about having fixed the flaw that enabled, you know, their own service to be hacked in the first place, um, and uh, uh, and certainly want to update that so that you're, you're you're not vulnerable from running that service just as they were. So you're safe to download it now. They, yes, they fixed the they fixed Pro FTPD from from now. Yes, or from December first, I guess. Yes, exactly. Okay. Um, a couple security sites have sort of raised the flag that ransomware is making a comeback. We saw ransomware a couple years ago where – actually, it was prevalent a couple years ago where, where users were getting a pop-up notice. Typically, you'd be browsing somewhere and script would run on your browser that popped up a notice that informed you that – it looked like it was it was anti malware. It, it like the 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 pop up would say something like, "We've just performed a quick security scan of your system and found something malicious on your computer. You know, in order to have this removed, please click here." That would then take you somewhere else. Now, then then there was for a while there was malware even worse, which would get into your system and encrypt the contents of your file system. Thus, the ransomware then saying you're not going to be able to get access to the content of your hard drive until you pay us. Now, the good news was that the, this, the technology was not very sophisticated. That is, the once this was reverse engineered, it was found, for example, that the crypto key was embedded in the ransomware itself and so it was, in fact, possible to get the drive decrypted without ever paying these clowns any money. But the bad news is, of course, we all know we've got the crypto technology now to do this correctly. And the ransomware that's making a comeback is now doing it correctly. It uses public key RSA 1024-bit um, crypto along with AES 256-bit symmetric cryptography to, to in fact, randomly create a key which is not embedded in the ransomware, which, um, and then they, they will, it will leave only a public key where the bad guys keep the private key. And so there is, there is no way now to get your data back other than to Accept the you know pay the ransom essentially, which uh, is as much as one hundred and twenty dollars to to get to get the bad guys to give you the key required to decrypt your hard drive. So um, it's being the, the ransomware is being spotted as uh, unfortunately in PDF files. Uh, people will you know open a PDF believing that it is uh, innocent and innocuous and find that. 
their hard drive after some length of time is inaccessible. Now, we know this doesn't happen instantly. That is, in order to encrypt a file system, it's got to run through the entire system. Yeah, anybody Anyone who's run who, TrueCrypt on their drive knows it takes pres- a while. Yeah. Precisely. I was just going to use that as an example. Perfect example. Anyone who's who's like done whole drive encryption knows that it, it is not something that happens fast. So the the at least one security company, I think it was Kaspersky, mentioned that if you had reason to believe that this was happening, pull the plug mm-hmm. or hit the reset button because you would stop that process in its tracks and still and then be able to recover all of your drive that hadn't been encrypted. Now the now I mean I guess I would question that if something were loose in your system. Um, it, well, I mean, the problem is you're vulnerable completely to whatever demands the bad guys make. On the other hand, if you stopped the encryption part way, you could then have huge chunks of your file system, like critical portions, like the directory system, encrypted, which would really make recovery very difficult. And it probably makes decrypting the portion that was encrypted impossible. So... I guess I'd wonder whether you're not better off saying, oh, shoot, and, you know, letting it go through in order to to then be able to pay up and get your whole drive decrypted. I mean, basically, you don't want this stuff on your computer yeah, at exactly. all. Exactly. You don't want to have to face that choice. That's no choice at all. <laughs> it's really bad news. I hate it when the bad guys follow good security practices. Yeah, well, and we've often talked on the show that, you know, security is, I mean, good crypto is available to everyone, the bad guys and the good guys. So, you know, one of my recent laments is that the FBI is talking about um, implementing some some legislation next year where they're talking about wiretap, you know, cranking up the the legislation on wiretapping so that any anything encrypted on the net, they would have wiretapping access to. The problem, of course, is that the crypto is already done. I mean, it's yeah. out there. It doesn't need to be. There's nothing left to invent. It's as good as it needs to be. And if they legislate against it, then that keeps good guys from being able to protect themselves from, from you know, just just for the sake of having crypto. And the bad guys will still use it anyway. All the so, good guys have broken cryptography and all the bad guys have secure cryptography. Is exactly. What it ends up with. That's exactly not a, not a good way to go. Well, and another reason we, to be shy of PDF files, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it, it's a consequence of the ongoing saga of WikiLeaks, which, you know, is bringing news every day um, for the last couple of weeks. Um, the Congress immediately responded with a new legislation. I love how they create these acronyms. This one is called SHIELD. They're good Stands- at that. If they're not good at anything else, they're good at the naming. <laughs> they do have good acronyms. Securing human intelligence and enforcing lawful dissemination. S-H-I-E-L-D. And essentially what this does is to amend the existing Espionage Act to include the publication of human intelligence it was already it was already a criminal offense to leak the information but one of the things that has annoyed the US Congress is you know in the case of WikiLeaks is it's not clear that that Assange is that his name Assange I think yeah. Julian J- yeah, Julian um, Assange yeah yeah it's not clear that Assange 
has broken any current U.S. law. Um, we know that the private first class, whatever his name was, in in Bradley Baghdad, Manning, yeah, PFC Manning. Yeah, we know that he broke the, the the laws by leaking this to WikiLeaks. But at the moment, there's nothing illegal about WikiLeaks then publishing it. So um, I don't know if this is going to uh, pass through law. It hasn't been. It hasn't been. It hasn't passed our own Congress, nor has uh, Obama yet signed it into law. But immediate, you know, the immediate reaction of Congress was to amend our Espionage Act in the U.S. to to make the publication of something that was leaked um, against the law a criminal offense. And but so I feel a little a question about whether the, even if this is put in place whether it could pass a first amendment test yes exactly i was gonna say i feel a little queasy about this this begins to you know impinge on free speech and we know that that you know once you get this this kind of intel uh, this kind of legislation then it the, the boundaries begin pushed it's like well okay what you know what are the requirements what what constitutes um information which you know, can't be leaked and or published. So, yeah. The leak of the Pentagon Papers in the early 70s uh, was allowed by the courts because of the doctrine of prior restraint. You can't stop someone from publishing. You can you can sue them after they publish for the consequences in various ways, libel, slander, those sorts of things. But you yep. can't restrain them from publishing. This seems like that would violate that doctrine of prior restraint. Yeah, don't know. It does, though. It does. It does seem like had this been in place, then Ellsberg wouldn't have been able to do what he did. So, yeah. exactly. And finally, um, speaking of prior restraint, speaking of prior <laughs> restraint, BlackBerry and Rim are uh, are st- is still going around in circles with India. Um, we've 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 talked a number of times about the problems that blackberry faces with the the various governments which have have demanded that they have access to blackberry's um text messaging technology apparently the audio channel is not posing a big problem they want email and text messages and the the problem has been that blackberry's technology is such that unless Unless the 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 traffic is routed through them through BlackBerry's servers, they then just in intercepting the traffic does not give a third party access because the 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 cryptographic keys are contained in the endpoint phones and nowhere else. And so, what what in in, in the news this week, BlackBerry explained that that. The, the enterprises that were running their own BlackBerry Enterprise servers, BES servers, um, those enterprises had truly unbreakable crypto and that India or any other government would have to go to the individual companies in order to arrange some sort of access to to their crypto. And I imagine that India would then threaten to, like, you know, block their use of 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 cryptographic communications that they were unable to intercept. So essentially that's that's the update on that is that India is going to have to go to individual companies and see about attain, obtaining the required credentials I guess for all the phones 
That, so, uh, so what would that entail? Would they would they have to go into each company and say we want to we want to put a piece of software on your BlackBerry Enterprise server, or would it just say we need to have your private key? How would how would that even work? Apparently, there is technology um, which which BlackBerry has talked about before, where some software would be added to the BlackBerry Enterprise servers, essentially installing a backdoor on the servers and. And that would allow for specific for specific users. It would it would essentially send send traffic to the government, which the government had the ability to, to decrypt. So it it would essentially decrypt the traffic as it was passing through the enterprise server from one phone to the other, and essentially allow a wiretap mm. where. A wiretap would not otherwise be possible. I get the feeling that this is saber rattling on the part of India. They just they just want to push to see how far they can get away with stuff because they've every time the deadline gets close and Rim says, you know what, we we can't do this. They back right. off. They extend the deadline. They push it away. They don't want to drive companies out of India. They need they need that economic boost. They need that job creation. Uh, so they're going to push this as far as they can, but. I get the sense that if the companies just resisted it, that there might not be any consequence. Well, and it is also the case that the only the, the reason we're only hearing about BlackBerry at this point. I mean, there has been some concern about about going after other mm. web-based email systems like Gmail, which is now fully SSL and and encrypted. Um, but we're not hearing about other phone-based systems because none of the other ones are this secure. So. <laughs> For example, you know the 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 Apple's iPhone doesn't offer this level of of you know public key endpoint to endpoint security, which BlackBerry. I mean, that was one of the selling points that that, that Rim has always had is that they were able to say to corporations, you know, I mean, that's it's why our own president right. of, of the U.S. Barack Obama, you know, has a Rim which has been you know further hardened, but you know they they have proven security in this technology, and the other phone technologies don't. All right. Well, uh, yeah, we'll we'll see. Uh, like I say, it's uh, it's it's fun to watch. I I hope, and I don't I don't think anything really bad is going to come out of this. But you never know. It's a, it's a lot easier to go after BlackBerry because they have the BES that you can. Right. It's it's easy for the government to see on the on the internet. It's harder to see where to go after, but it's actually easier to crack. Yes, exactly. Well, so um, I wanted to update. I had a. I actually, in doing the Q and A last week, I ran across a number of really fun Spinrite testimonials. I always look for something new and different that I haven't talked about before. And this one was from a listener of ours, Doug White, who whose subject was Spinrite helps the buffalo roam. Oh my! And he said, I got a frantic call from a friend. That his NAS device, his network-attached storage device, a Buffalo Terra station, thus the roaming mm, buffalo, okay, I get it. Okay, was no longer appearing as a mapped drive on his network. Apparently, they were doing some work in the building and had switched the breakers off and on several times over the weekend. And as the NAS was hooked to a UPS in another part of the building, they didn't hear the UPS's mm. screams. So it appears that the NAS was cycled up and down a few times. I said, no worries. The Terra station is only, only holding a second copy of all your files, right? Silence. Mm -mm. 
right? He says, I'd initially set it up so that all of their important files, hundreds of gig of music tracks that he's recorded in-house for himself and for other musicians were being copied over to the recording PC, which contained the master copy, then to the Terra station so that there was a second backup. They liked the idea of the RAID 5 protection being offered by the Buffalo Terra station so much that they decided it would be great to use the Terra station as a central repository for all sorts of other information as well as you know such as invoices quotes etc as well as other soundtracks that were being modified on another workstation in the building so there was quite a bit of one-off stuff that accumulated on the terra station why not they thought it's got four drives in a raid five configuration what safer place to put the stuff i showed up expecting a failed drive or the like. But the Terra Station status display showed that all was well. No failed drives. I checked the workstations, and sure enough, the NAS device was not showing up on the network. I pinged its IP address, which is one of the items cycling through the NAS display, and it responded to the ping. When I tried to browse to the web-based admin interface, however, no response there either. Mm. Even though, it was, even though it responded to pings, I wasn't entirely sure that the little Linux-based motherboard in the enclosure wasn't damaged. So I contacted Buffalo Tech Support. To my chagrin, they said that the device was so old, he said, and he says plus six years old, there were no enclosures to be had to attempt to swap the drives over to another enclosure. Even buying a new enclosure would not work, according to them, as the newer firmware probably wouldn't recognize the old drive's RAID encoding. I was at a loss as to where to go from there. Maybe eBay to see if I could find an old enclosure? Well, while I mulled over how to proceed, I figured, what the heck, I'll run Spinrite on the four SATA drives while I try to locate another enclosure. Drive number, one, n- drive number one flew through just fine, but drive number two of the four had some Dynastat action under Spinrite, and Spinrite had to recover some sectors. Drives three and four sailed through just fine. Curious as to whether anything had changed, I reinstalled the four drives into the NAS enclosure and fired it up. This time, the NAS display indicated that it had to do some resyncing, which went on for several hours. Lo and behold, after it had resunk, I tried to attach to the network share and voila, it was there. I was then able to attach to the web-based admin interface with no trouble. I quickly attached an external USB drive to my system and copied all the files off the shared volume. And he says, Perens, well, as quickly as you can transfer 620 gig across a USB device anyway. I'm not sure why damage to one of the drives would have prevented us from attaching to shares or logging into the web interface, but I wasn't going to look a gift horse in the mouth. I was tickled that the files were once again accessible, and you can imagine how my friends felt. I was a hero. I'd like to emphasize with this story that many users, technically savvy and not, assume that since their stuff is on a device, 
that it's protected against a single drive failure via RAID 5 or the like, and that all the data is safe. What many don't take into account is that what happens if the enclosure dies scenario. So I'd like to reemphasize the one three two or the three two one backup strategy that you and Leo have talked about in past shows. My friend ended up buying another newer and larger terror station. Fortunately, the newer terror stations have an option to synchronize files with one another. So my friend now has two NAS devices on opposite ends of the building that are syncing to one another nightly. Next up is trying to figure out how to get 600-plus gig of files off-site and backed up, either via sneaker netting a USB drive or some cloud-based backup service. Add this to the list for yet another Spinrite success story. My friend will be purchasing a copy of Spinrite for their own use from now on. Well, that leaves very nicely into our second sponsor, actually. What do you know? (laughs) (laughs) Um... (laughs) Carbonite Pro. Business PCs crash all the time, as your story illustrates. Uh, And uh, part part of a a good backup strategy is having a cloud backup service. If if you're running into hard drive failures like that or just viruses, uh, you want to keep your business up and running, even if your computers aren't with Carbonite Pro. Carbonite Pro backs up all of your PCs in your business automatically whenever they're connected to the Internet. It's safe. It's easy to use. It's automatic. And it's affordable. Gives you a centralized dashboard uh, to give you backup status summary if there's ever a data loss prog- problem. And because your files are backed up off-site, everybody can access their own files from any computer or even with an app on their iPhone or their BlackBerry with Carbonite's free app. Backups are encrypted end-to-end. All this means you can just focus on your business and not have to worry so much. You've got you've got your local backup. You've got your cloud backup. You're all taken care of. Try Carbonite Pro for free for 30 days. Prices start as low as $10 per month. Uh, go to CarbonitePro.com and check it out. Uh, if you have eight computers, for instance, with five gigabytes of backup, it's $25 a month. 18 computers with five gigabytes of backup, $50 a month. 10 to $50 per month for peace of mind for you and all of your employees. Check it out for free, 30 days. CarbonitePro.com. So now we have to figure out if I want to be tagged. Do I want to put a subcutaneous chip in my arm? (laughs) Well, um, is it your arm? where, Where would you put it? Where the hobbyists are putting it is sort of in that gap of skin between their thumb and their first finger on the backside of their hand. Um, one one of them, I, I did some some poking around the net uh, as I was researching, you know, like how prevalent was this? And one of them made a comment about being careful when you put your hand into like tight jeans because you wouldn't want to catch the chip under your skin on like the, the pocket of your jeans. And I, that just sent shudders through me. It's like, oh my goodness. No, you, you, you certainly no. wouldn't want that to happen. I don't want to have to think about that. So some of, some of the, the, I think the more popular place is between your elbow and your shoulder, sort of in your, in your upper arm. Um, you uh, apparently there, there's the question of migration that is a, a smooth capsule 
can tend to migrate more than one that's deliberately, that there's like a non-migratory coating that they can receive that I think probably has like some fur on it, you know, so that, so, so that it's sort of, it you know, it's not slippery. A, and it tends a to mink sort of, capsule, perhaps? <laughs> it sort of locks into it, into your location. But I have to say from a, First of all, there's it's passive technology, so there's no no batteries to replace. You don't have to. It's not like a pacemaker where after some length of time it needs to be taken out and, and opened up again. Um, one of the concerns that exists currently is that we're still far away from standards, and you know I always tend to guess wrong. I went with Betamax back in the day. And, of course, Beta Lost and VHS won. And then I also went with HD thinking, okay, yeah, well, I, Sony lost last time. I I'm did not the same going thing. With... <laughs> so I've got a bunch of these red, you know, red DVDs, and the blue is the one that won off. I've got the out. Xbox HD DVD player attachment yep. as well. Yep. Be a collector's so, item someday. So, so I'm thinking, you know, with this, you, you, you wouldn't want to go with the Betamax of subcutaneous implants. <laughs> Uh, and then to have that one not win, but I mean, I really from a from a from a convenience standpoint, I mean the okay, we we've talked a lot about biometrics and fingerprints, and one of the one of the downsides is that you can't change your fingerprint, and if if it really became valuable for like someone to desperately like bad guys to need your fingerprint, uh, well, there's only one way they can get it. And and that never has a happy ending. So you know the idea that okay, I've got something which you can you, know, you, you can feel it. It's there under your skin. It's like a, a the 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 size of the most popular one is it's two millimeters by twelve millimeters. Uh, Philips makes it. It's called the high tag. So if you just Google Philips with one L P H I L I P S space. High tag H I T A G. You can find some pictures of this thing on the net. It's like about the length of a. It's I often see it sitting next to a a standard uh, U.S. penny, and so it's about the, it's about the length of the penny's diameter, and and that's twelve millimeters by two. So it's a you know it's it's a rounded end little capsule. It uses low frequency induction. So that it's powered by the it's powered by the reader, which which generates which essentially magnetically couples into it. It's very much like I'm sure people have probably seen ads now for like recharge like, like the Palm was it the Palm Pre that doesn't need to be plugged in. You just sort of set it on its on its little right. pedestal. Right, it's got that induction charge. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and so so these work in the same technology. Um, they generally have a, a short reading range that is a few inches. There are some that are that are you know that can go feet or yards, but um, and so that's sort of a, a, a mixed blessing. But I I sort of like the idea of the convenience if there were a standard for for I mean I would don't think I would mind being tagged if the technology made sense. Um, Mice have had a problem. Um, mice were were tagged, and it and the the for whatever reason they tended to to, to get some um, uh, skin cancers associated with the tagging. Mm. But 
other med medical professionals have said, well, you know, mice get cancer. That's what mice do. Um, and so, you know, they, that's what they, the they, smoking they, people said too. But <laughs> that, <that's>, exactly. <laughs> and so, so you know, you you'd before we went went into this, you'd want to make sure that it was, you know, safe for, you know, clearly safe for, for human implantation. There was some concern that the metal in the capsule would interact, for example, with medical scanners like, like MRIs, where, you know, you 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 would have, have a problem with a really strong magnetic field. But the Mythbuster guys took that one on and, you know, they were concerned that like you, it would overheat and it would burn you or something. It will turn out that doesn't happen. It didn't even upset the 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 uh, technology at all so so my problem with current tags is that they're a little unsophisticated from a from a cryptographer from a from a crypto standpoint there's one guy who's um who has a site where he is like he has had fun reverse engineering these things and and quoting from some text on his site he said i can copy a proximity card at least as easily as i can take an impression of a key this means that it's not a very good idea to reuse visitor cards without changing the id and that it doesn't really matter whether you get the physical card back from the guy you just fired meaning that you know Somebody who had a card could easily clone the card. It's just there isn't a, there, there's just no difficulty in doing so. He says more insidiously, it's quite practical to read someone's card without even removing it from their wallet. A bit of deliberate clumsiness, a reader up my sleeve, and I would have little trouble cloning anyone's card. I could also exploit the fact that the distance at which the cards will be powered is less than the distance at which they can be read, meaning that they can be read from a much larger, a much farther distance passively than they were being powered. So he says, if another reader is exciting the card, then my reader can read that card from the other side of a wall, for example. Mm. He says, this means that a sniffer concealed somewhere near a legitimate reader could intercept real transactions at a significant difference. This sort of attack is particularly good because the card repeats its ID over and over and over as long as it is in the field. So I could use signal processing, and he goes on to talk about signal processing techniques to combine multiple copies of the pattern to further imp improve my read range. So, if this, so if he was this is the RFID chip on a card, but essentially what you're saying is the same could be applied to an RFID chip if it's implanted, right? Well, and that's the problem is that, for example, there is this FDA approved chip is called the Vera chip, which it has a just a simple 16 digit fixed ID. So there's no way that that qualifies. I mean, no listener of ours is going to accept the implantation of something that has a fixed ID. Um, the problem being exactly that is that that everything that I just read, he's, he's, he's talking about access cards, but it uses exactly the same inductive technology as one of these little Im, 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 implantable uh, tags. And, and so all it's doing is when you ping it, essentially, it sends back the this is who I am response. So it's trivial to clone it. And so... 
it just doesn't be, I mean, it's got zero crypto sophistication. So what we need is we need useful cryptography in some in in an, an implantable device like this. All right, so, well, that's a great moment for us to to thank our last sponsor. Leave people on the edge of their seats as they wait for that that solution there. Perfect. Uh, but I do want to I do want to thank Go to Assist Express for their support of Security Now. If you're an IT or software consultant, you're always on the lookout ways to be more competitive, and you need to grow your business, but you can't be in two places at once. Not even if you're chipped, you're still one person. With GoToAssist Express, you can increase revenue by handling more support requests while staying right where you are. Reduce that travel time. Don't go through all those security gates and those backscatter scanners. Support clients even when they're not at their computer. Uh, a faster, more professional service with GoToAssist Express. Start your sessions with just one click. It's like all the services from Citrix. You can send the person you're helping an instant email inten- uh, invitation. It works with PCs or Macs. doesn't matter which one they're on. Share your screen. They can share theirs. You can see the same problem they're seeing. Diagnose the problem by accessing their desktop remotely. Tells you what software is running, all the things you need to know, operating system, programs, security software, etc. Then you can fix the problem by accessing the files on their computer. You'll solve more tech support questions more quickly with GoToAssist Express from Citrix. Try it for free for 30 days. Visit GoToAssist. I'm going to make sure I get that. I've done this for so many different shows. I want to make sure I get this right. Uh, go to assist. Uh, I, I I don't have the uh, the URL right in front of me. Go to assist.com slash security. It's on the screen. Why don't I just look at my own monitor? Go to assist.com slash security. 30 days free. And we thank them for their support of security now. So let's figure this out. How do we get a chip in ourselves that's secure? That's so nobody can scan and rewrite and steal all of our information right out of our elbow. The the secret is we need a technology which which embeds a well a secret in in this chip. So so we have a chip and it needs to know something that that never leaves it. So the idea being that that it can be challenged to by by the reader the you know whatever ent- entity to which it wants to authenticate it can be challenged to to prove that it has a secret without it divulging the secret so the problem with just a simple id of any length even if it was more than 16 digits is it's, it's unchanging it's you know it's just not going to be different every time so what we want to be we, we, we what we want to prevent is any sort of a replay attack where where somebody passively listening to the chip respond is able to capture that or even if there's more technology going on if there's something fancy going on for example where a a challenge is given and the chip responds we want we want a technology such that no, there's no way to replay that or to gain information about the secret in the chip by eavesdropping on on both sides of the conversation, the, the, the outbound to the chip and the chip's response. So, you know, we, we've covered crypto topics enough here to know that there's two approaches. There's a, a private key approach or a public key approach. The private key approach is is going to be simpler um it would involve a you know a simple cipher like the AES cipher for example to 
to drive an encryption function. So, for example, the the entity wanting to, to which you want to authenticate, when you approach it, um, it it would generate. You might press a button, or just, or, or uh, you might approach it. You would respond saying, "Hey, I'm here." It would respond by 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 generating a large random number. Thus, you or 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 either that or using a counter, which is never going to repeat. So it's never going to issue the same value a second time. So you never need to worry about about someone capturing its um, its challenge and and then seeing what the matching response is and being able to issue that. So it issues a unique challenge, and you know there's lots of ways to produce a a cryptographically unique challenge that will never repeat. It sends that out over the air to the chip, which uses its secret key to simply encrypt that challenge and send it back. So so the idea is that, and this is the, the beauty of simple symmetric cryptography is that it doesn't help an attacker to see the essentially what is the plain text going out to the chip and the cipher text coming back it it, it, it would be a, a you know a 256 bit string for example or in the case of if we used AES 256 it would be a 128 bit string but still 128 bits is a, an, a phenomenal um a, a number of possibilities so and you would the the challenger would never be using the same one twice. So there's just no way, to, even though you see these 128 bits going out, to to determine what the function is inside. That is what 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 the secret key is, which is producing a a, a matching 128 bit reply. Once the challenger received that reply. It would also have the secret key. It would know the secret key. And so it would similarly encrypt its challenge and verify that the result of that encryption under the same secret key matched the one it had. And that would prove that the secret key in the chip matched the secret key that was registered with it. So the advantage is it can be eavesdropped on because you're using symmetric crypto, it's relatively simple. It's it's a low computational cost to pull this off. Um, the the downside of using a symmetric key is that you do have to divulge your secret to anything you want to authenticate against, and and anyone who has the secret can um, can impersonate you. So. The problem with using the simplest symmetric key technology is that is that if you, for example, if I wanted my garage door opener and my car and my laptop and my cell phone and you know all of the devices in my life to be auto to be able to authenticate me, they would have to have the the have to know the secret key that I've got implanted in my body. So we want to take it probably to the next step. Well, because, so what you're saying is that that ends up being a vulnerability where they don't have to get the key out of your arm. They get it out of your garage door opener or, or the or the scanner that, that you're passing by or or there's pl- too many places where that key is. 
Exactly. It, it, exactly. It, it, it's in. It's. It's not just in my arm. It's also in all of the devices that want to authenticate me would have a copy of it. And so all a bad guy would have to do is is compromise one of them, get the key out of there, and then it's trivial to impersonate me by putting the same key in 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 the same kind of device and then you know so waving it around and getting access to something that might be substantially more useful to have access to than whatever device it was that they decrypted. I mean, you could imagine, you know, if if so- someone who was chipped like this would probably be using it everywhere they could just to get the maximum bang for the buck. And so... Yeah, what's so, the point of being chipped otherwise, right? Exactly. So the the we, we take it one step further using asymmetric key technology, which is really where I think this has to go before I'm comfortable using it. And so what what that means is that that thanks to the fact that that public key technology has a pair of keys which are different and that there is no way knowing the public key to well the, I I I should say I I should be rigorously cryptographically correct here and say it is computationally infeasible with everything we know right. To obtain the private key from the public key. So in this scenario, my more sophisticated, more complex implant, which, you know, it might mean that it takes a little bit longer for the authentication to happen. Because literally, I would have to hold this in the magnetic field which is powering the device long enough for it to crank through it, 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 for it to crank through public key crypto, which is is substantially more sophisticated than symmetric key crypto. So I, I bring myself near the reader. I again receive a, a a challenge. This time I use my private key to encrypt that challenge and then send it back. The beauty is that that the public key can be known to everyone. In fact, we could even, for example, if a system like this became popular, you could stick it in a text record uh, in your DNS server mm-hmm. and say, here, you know, to everybody, this is, you know, this is Steve's the public key to the chip he's got in his arm. Um, all devices anywhere could know it, and them knowing it doesn't hurt you in any way because i mean it just means that you get to have more use from this thing um if you know if that's the application uh that, that you wanted to put it to so so essentially it allows it allows the unlocking of the 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 challenger side such that um it's possible to authenticate the 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 ownership of the private key using the public key at any time. There's nothing that needs to be kept secret. There's a little. There's there's a higher complexity um, in terms of doing the math, but still certainly not out of the out of range of what we can embed in something like this. Um, so it's p- potentially, I think, entirely feasible to come up with a with a, a, a workable chip which is embedded in people that. Um, would allow them to authenticate in a way that is oh the the well the, the, so 
if, if, if we step back a second and say, okay, what are the requirements that we have for this? Well, we know that we want proven biological safety. We don't want this thing to, you know, get lost in our body somewhere by migrating to some other location. Or give us the cancer. Or we don't want it to give us the cancer. Exactly. Uh, we want a single settled standard. That is, again, we don't want to, you know, choose you know, Betamax and have the world go off in a different direction. So, you know, you can't get in anywhere because you, you picked the wrong chip. Exactly. It's like being and you uninvited. certainly don't, nor, nor, and, and we, 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 we've talked before about having like a key ring of, of, um, like dongles where each one runs something different. Well, you wouldn't want to have to have a whole lineup of these things in your arm where, you know, of all different standards in order to, in order to cover the different possibilities. Um, you, we need it to be clone proof, meaning that it's going to use good crypto, you know, state of the art crypto. One of the problems has been that um, some of these technologies have not have they've been proprietary. Ti designed that technology that was in the speed pass. Remember that for a while you could buy gas just by driving your car up to a pump and it would light up. Um, I think it might have been mobile. Um, I remember it was a Pegasus. Uh, I mean, I, I, I thought it was kind of a cool thing. I, I did sign up for and use the speed pass for a while. The problem was that the Texas Instruments engineers came up with their own cipher. Well, we know that's never a good idea. Mm. And it turns out it wasn't. It turned out that it was very easily crackable. It used a 40-bit cipher, which is, eh, I mean, the key length may have been enough but you know why not go 128 bits they were trying to keep the cost low they used their own cipher that wasn't ever uh, vetted by the industry turns out it was hacked and cracked um, in a matter of hours i think six hours is what it took in order for the algorithm itself to be reverse engineered from scratch and then some people did verify that it, it had cracked this. So that speed pass was an example of an early approach that just, you know, it it wasn't standards-based. It wasn't open. It was a proprietary protocol. So that's the other thing we'd want is, you know, a, a completely open technology so that you know what you're injecting yourself with here is going to, you know, is like what the industry has agreed upon and, you know, your laptop and your cell phone and your car and, you know, every other thing that you use is going to be able to, to um, interact with this. And finally, I really think it needs to be rewritable. It, it, no matter what it is you, you, you put into yourself, you'd like to be able to change it. If, if something happens and you, know, you want to change your private key, even though it, it, there's no way that key can get away from you, being able to change it makes sense. If nothing else, you could just zero it in order to turn this thing off. If you decided you wanted to deactivate it temporarily or maybe permanently without having it surgically removed from you. Yeah, you then- want to have control over it without having to dig it out of your arm or your <laughs> neck like they do in the movies. Exactly. And uh, and also, I think it wants to be small enough that it's not going to set up security scanners every time you go through from, 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 through, through some, you know, uh, uh, airline TSA yeah. scan, it, they might be wondering what it is you've got, you know, in your right rear butt cheek. Um, and you don't want them to have to try to find out. Yeah, the the extensive pat down you want to avoid uh, if possible. And finally, operating distance. I, I see that as the real bugaboo here because 
it's a trade-off. You, for greater security, you want shorter range. You'd like to have, like for your own personal use, a few inches is probably fine. On the other hand, if your arms are loaded with bags and you're coming in in the rain, how cool is it that your door unlocks for you and you don't have to fumble with your keys? So, so again, it's if, if you were within a few feet of that, that would be nice. The problem is there isn't a hard and fast technology for limiting range. Um, range is based on signal strength. And, and if you, you know, if some bad guy wanted to, to ping you at a greater distance, all they have to use is a, you know, a bigger roll of wire, more power behind it, and, and a greater sensitivity antenna. So, they're, so they're the distance really, is reliant on the reader, not the chip itself? Um, to a certain with, extent. Sort of both, except that you can always get greater distance by having the reader generate a, a stronger magnetic field and be more sensitive to the returning signal from the chip. So, so, so yes, it is. It's more a function of the reader. Although, you know, you could design, you could deliberately design chips that had a lower range. Except, except again, you could, no matter how low you made it, you could always affect that by by more juice coming from the reader. So, so there, it's just not a hard and fast thing. I, I'm, I think I'd be more inclined to have a greater reading distance than I would. Uh, a short distance, just because I would want this for convenience. And, uh, you know, it'd, it'd be nice if I could just approach the front door of the house and have it unlock and approach my car and, and have it do the same thing. And and frankly, I think the whole idea is kind of cool. I know it creeps some people out. Um, you know, the downsides are, I guess, what? Being tracked. You know, that, that you might be you might be identified or pinged even when you don't want to be. Unfortunately, I can't see a means for a sort of in real time disabling it. It'd be nice if like you could like, you know, click it or something. Or turn it and, on. You know, could you wrap it, a Faraday cage around your arm? Oh, uh, now there you go. Have a big like uh, uh, like copper bracelet or something. That yeah, you just a, a, a security sleeve that can pull down out of your shoulder. Now, there are some companies that sell um, silicone um, wristbands. That have these embedded, and I and I as I was researching, I thought, well, you know, I mean, it's not quite as convenient as like having it in you, mm -hmm. but you really don't need to be scanned when you're completely, you know, naked, uh, and the rest of the time, unless you're going you've got, to board an airplane, you <laughs> exactly. Um, and then I was thinking, well, okay, how about you know, the, the it's such a tiny little capsule, you could also like drill a little two millimeter hole in the sole of your shoe and slide the capsule into your shoe. So I'm just sort of thinking of yeah. alternatives to embedding it in your body that would still give you a, a lot of the benefit of, of, of the convenience of, of having, you know, something that is securely authenticatable and associated with you. On the other hand, if someone stole your shoes, yeah. then then they would they would you know be you it's much well i mean it's not i guess they could saw your arm off but it's a lot more difficult to do something like that than to grab onto somebody's shoe or or slip a wristband off a wrist or something like that. or you could just lose it yeah too. and again that's why you know relative to sawing your arm off why i'd be happy to tell my captors you know here here you know there's the capsule there in my arm here's Please my private just, key <laughs> just dig it out do not you know don't take the whole arm you yeah. only need a little one inch chunk so I, 
I, I agree with you. I think, you know, the fact that uh, the problems of cryptography on this are not insurmountable nope. uh, and and it could be incredibly convenient uh, for many different reasons. Uh, but you mentioned something earlier that, that gave me pause, which was the idea of your corporation or your place of work saying, mm-hmm. okay, you know, we make you carry around an ID card with an RFID chip. You know, that's a little expensive. We'd just like everybody to have this implanted, please. Well, yes. And so it, it is the case that people have been concerned about that. And as a consequence, there's at least three states that have legislation on the books now that specifically prohibit employers from acquiring employees to be chipped, as the new verb uh, has been coined. Um, and, you know, f- frankly, if if a standard existed and your company was using access cards and your chip used the same technology as the access card then it'd be kind of cool that's why we need the standard right that's why we need a standard and uh you know i just i i i i haven't thought through the downside i guess i'm not living a life where i'm too concerned about um about the tracking aspect for example i would like it if you know for my for my credit card to be used maybe if i have to also have you know be pinged if i require to be physically present that would be nice or again yeah. back to the back to the gas pump if the gas pump had the technology and i and i was chipped then hey it's it's very easy for me to to you know authenticate to the gas pump and not have to yeah, you know, use a a, a credit card. Sit Essentially, there and put in your zip code and all that crazy stuff that you have to do now. I, yeah. I, you know, when you talk about the tracking aspect of it, though, you think about it, you're totally trackable without a chip in you already. There's facial recognition software that can identify you. You're leaving fingerprints everywhere you go. You, you've got a cell phone that yeah. is sending out a logged in ping, and all kinds of things are wanting you know geo tracking now. So you can't encrypt your face. But you can encrypt a chip. Yes, it seems like that's actually a safer than just having a face. Well, the 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 public key technology, if if the if the public side were known, then you would be trackable. However, nothing prevents you from keeping that secret too. You could still have the benefit of an asymmetric crypto and. You know, work to keep the public key secret in the same way that you would much more diligently work yeah. to keep the secret key secret. Um, and then, you know, and then, you know, you may be given off a signal, you know, but it doesn't matter because, you know, there's nothing there. there there's no way that anyone would have of associating that with you because um, uh, because, you know, they wouldn't have your matching key. Yeah. I, and, and I think some way to turn it on and off, even if it is just yeah. blocking blocking it, uh, makes it more viable as well. You've almost well, convinced we, me. We've, we, we've, we've seen the same sort of thing with passports, where passports mm-hmm. were going to get IF, RFID chips, and they were going to use a metal folder. And in fact, I think, I think that the... Um, uh, what's the crazy uh, site? ThinkGeek? ThinkGeek, yeah. ThinkGeek sells think the wallets, th- yeah. Yes, and and those 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 block that kind of remote access. So, so yeah, I, I you know I mean we're certainly we're a long way away from it, 
But I thought the fact that hobbyists are beginning to chip themselves. I mean, they're they're using, unfortunately, low technology chips. This Philips chip has some sort of of a of a encrypted um, challenge and response technology. Unfortunately, it's proprietary, and I couldn't see anywhere where they they talk about the algorithm. And it wasn't very much bit length. There was a 32 bit response to I think a, a two two different 32-bit chunks. But again, they just didn't talk about it at all. And so for me, it, it's got to be more than just a fixed ID that it, that it sends out. Otherwise, you, you really are prone to being cloned. My friend Veronica Belmont has said she wanted to be chipped for a long time. I think you've almost convinced me to join her. Well, um, I will keep us and uh, our listeners up to date on this. If, uh, if, if it happens... Um, I think it'd be kind of cool. I could see some upsides. Maybe I'll try it with the dogs first, since they're already chipped. Uh, if I could get it to, to where, you know, at certain times of day, their chip allows them to just open the door automatically and they could let themselves out, take care of their business. That, is, that itself would be a, incredibly handy. And, yeah. and maybe that's, you know, maybe that's a good test field. Pets would be a test field for this, in all seriousness, to, to kind of work out some of the kinks because your security level is lower there. Well, and it's absolutely the case that there there exist today um, silicone, um, you know, bracelets that 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 carry chips in them. So if someone wanted to experiment with yeah. the convenience of using it, th- there are SD cards for laptops that uh, that that can receive the RFID signal from a bracelet. So you could tie you know tie it to TrueCrypt so that your that. The TrueCrypt won't boot your laptop unless you know you're physically there, or that is your bracelet is. Yeah. And so, so you know, there are half steps people could take before they, you know, committed to uh, <laughs> a surgical procedure. I, but apparently, you know, it's just not a big deal to have it done. You just use a little bit of a, you know, you know, some plastic, you know, a little outpatient plastic surgery to sort of cut a slit, a slit, and slip this in, and you're done. I just thought of one minor downside to that when you when you gave that example. You know, TrueCrypt has the hidden volume that you mm-hmm. can use if they demand your password. You can give them, the, you know, the the password for the for the the fake volume. You couldn't right. do that if you were, if you were authenticating on your chip. They just grab you and. You know, thrust your elbow down and, <laughs> and hold and you you're into your the real volume. There's you yeah. can't make use of it, but probably not a uh, probably not a common problem, but but problem enough for some people if yeah. you're worried about it. All right, Steve. Well, I, uh, I really appreciate you letting me uh, the host while Leo is gone with you. Uh, this is fabulous. I've learned a lot. It's uh, been great, and uh, yeah, I hope I hope you enjoyed it too. Uh, you can find uh, well grc.com, right? That's the that's the place where Spin Right and Shields Up and and all the good products are. Yep. And uh, you will be back next week. Do you know your topic? Or we'll be well. Uh, uh, this not being a Q and A, we'll be doing a Q and A next week. So I did want to encourage our listeners. I imagine there'll there'll be some some interesting feedback from this topic. And so grc.com slash feedback. Uh, please, listeners, you know, go there. Let me know what you think about this, and we'll—I uh, think—we'll have a fun episode uh, using feedback from this rather potentially controversial topic, uh, which Leo and I will cover next week. All right, thanks everybody for watching Security Now. You can find us at twit.tv/sn. Leo will be back next week. We'll see you then. Thanks, Tom. Security Now.